Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. August 1979. Philip Elmer DeWitt, 30 years old, joins Time magazine as a temporary secretary where he poured coffee and ripped off AP headlines. He then moved up the masthead, was the first computers correspondent for the magazine. After 37 years at the world's premier magazine conglomerate, uh, working at Fortune, working at Time, including 12 cover stories, meeting with the likes of Steve Jobs, profiling world leaders, This Apple blogger is now striking out on his own Apple 3.0. Philip Elmer DeWitt with us for the hour. Full disclosure, stay with us. Broadcasts of Full Disclosure made possible by Health Warrior, makers of Chia Bars. Ounce for ounce, Chia has more omega-3 than salmon, more fiber than oatmeal, and packs protein, calcium, and antioxidants, certified gluten-free, certified non-GMO, certified kosher, and you know me, I love these Chia bars, especially apple, cinnamon, and mango, but you can also get them in chocolate peanut butter, banana nut, coconut coffee, acai berry, dark chocolate cherry. The Chia seeds are available in premium black Chia seeds and premium white Chia seeds. Visit them at healthwarrior.com. And by Elwood Thompson's, locally owned and independently operated natural foods market serving Richmond, Virginia since 1989. I love the hot bar for breakfast. I love Indian Wednesdays. I love the cafe. I love the beat. Visit them at the top of Carytown and on elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from New York is Philip Elmer DeWitt, who just recently announced he was leaving the magazine Empire Time, Inc., which owns Time Magazine, of course, Fortune Magazine, People. It was the place to work and get an expense account in the heyday of journalism back in the day. I believe there was even a drink cart. But he is now striking out on his own and and hanging up a shingle as Apple 3.0. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. I I hate to correct that introduction but I, uh, because I was in New York for many, many years, but I actually live in... Uh, up in Greenfield, Massachusetts, in what they call the Knowledge Corridor, uh, above the Five College area. Wait, so you're not in New York right now? No, I'm I'm in uh, Leafy Greenfield. With, but why uh, Why are you on this show? Who the heck is this guy? Why did we book him? <laughs> on the internet, nobody knows you're living in Greenfield. Well, just act the part, if you will. That's what I like about this, actually. And it gets to what we want to talk about. <clears throat> Tortured transition there, but um, I always read you as. Philip Elmer DeWitt on the Twitters, really indispensable person who covers Apple really well. You have since, I believe, the iPhone was launched. And I don't need to care if you're based in Bonn or Berlin or the Berkshires or Greenpoint. Uh, The point is you can do your job remotely and you don't have to be tethered to an address or, as you're telling us right now, a magazine conglomerate. Right. And and actually, the location is the least of it. I mean, the the business model of publishing has... Uh, been disrupted in so many ways and so painfully uh, that uh, you know, we'll get into it. But it, it you know, to, for me to be uh, surrounded by uh, ads and self videos that start themselves and 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 links to half naked women, you know, uh, it doesn't make any sense. And and especially if Fortune is rumored might end up going behind a paywall. I figure 
if they if someone's going to pay to read my stuff, they might as well pay me directly. Well, back up, back up first. Let's let's get to the essentials because this is all scintillating stuff, sir. Be honest with us right now. You are sixty six years old. Um, are you in a bathrobe? <laughs> no, I got. I, I'm fully dressed. I've already walked the dog. I've already gone shopping. Have you ever uh, written a killer Apple post or or done an interview or something in your bathrobe? I always thought that was the best vindication as a journalist, like to be able to, you know, transmit and project as a thought leader, but to be doing something in your bathrobe as a LinkedIn well, influencer. Yeah, well, you know, I I, I don't. I'm not uh, a guy who wears a lot of bathrobes. You know, I, I didn't found Playboy magazine, but I do. Um, I do not. Uh, it's nice not to worry about my hair and whether it whether it's combed or not, uh, or how much of it I have. Now at Fortune magazine, I think since the dawn really of of the iPhone in two thousand seven, you've been writing about Apple religiously. You're very patched in. I I I like to scan it for sell side reports or channel checks or various controversies from AntennaGate to what's going on with uh, San Bernardino right now. Um, I I do like that in your Twitter profile. It says, after working for someone else, Time Inc., for 36 years, I'm going independent. Goodbye, Apple 2.0, which is the column you wrote for Fortune. Hello, Apple 3.0. And that's at PED30.com. You're charging $10 a month, $100 a year. Um, That's really putting it out there. That's not really even nibbling on my ear. That's saying that my content is for sale. Uh, Were you squeamish about doing that? Um, no, I, I think it's, uh, I should have done this years ago, frankly. Uh, the, the other people have, have proved that you can make a living, uh, and in the case of John Gruber, making a very good living, uh, writing about Apple on your own. You don't actually need a publication to support you. Uh, the, the, I'm, I'm kind of like a hothouse flower who's worked for, you know, more than three decades I don't ad. understand that reference. I'm Gen yeah. X. What the heck's a hothouse flower? You use well, something like the, Howdy Doody time? What, what is no, that? No, it's, it's like, um, uh, you know, in a greenhouse, everything's taking care of you. The water, you know, people come and water you and they sprinkle you with fertilizer. In the in the Time Inc. magazines, there was a, a, a phalanxes of ad salesmen who went out and wined and dined and gave free Yankee tickets to advertisers to to bring in money to support the journalism that Time Inc. magazines were doing. Uh, and now they're in this terrible uh, dilemma where they have to trade uh, print ad dollars for mobile ad pennies. And uh, it's desperate times out there for legacy media. And the, there's nothing more legacy than the, the number one publisher of magazines in the world. I think Time Inc. still publishes 90 magazines, although far fewer than they used to and on far thinner paper. Now, for the longest time, Time Inc. was obviously owned by Time Warner, the conglomerate that has CNN, the cable networks, HBO. There was a great cross-subsidy going on for a while where you were just such a small player. Even within Time, Inc., the magazine empire, the cash cow was historically and still is to a certain extent People magazine, the tabloid. But that, too, is being disrupted by all the cheap celebrity blogging that's out there and and nipple slip photos and whatnot, whatever kids are doing these days. Um, so if Fortune magazine was a kind of a part of it, and maybe it would, ha- it would lose money every year, but they would tolerate the losses. They brought down the the frequency of Fortune magazine, much to my heartbreak several years ago, went from being a biweekly to, I don't know, sometimes it appears one and a half times a month. Um, 
And and Time Inc. was spun off, uh, unceremoniously spun off from Time Warner and saddled with a lot of debt. So it really put in an untenable position. And if, if I remember correctly, they were even moved out of their nice midtown headquarters, the Time Life building, down to Ground Zero. Yeah, near Ground Zero. I haven't actually been there yet. They also got moved out of offices where, where people generally had offices into a big bullpen. Uh, you know, it's funny. You, you go over that list of mergers and stuff, and I was there for all of that. I yeah, remember take us. When... Can you take us back to 1980? So this was, again, mm-hmm. this was the heyday. I'm thinking the drink cart magazine yep. closing time. That somebody would actually come up to you uh, with white glove service and prepare you a drink? Uh, they prepare you a dinner with the gloves on. It was it was a Henry Luce uh, innovation. He realized uh, pretty quickly that writers, once they turned their piece in, they just wanted to get drunk. And they would generally leave the building and go to the nearby bars in Midtown. So to keep them around so that they were there to answer the researchers' questions and to deal with the edits and do a rewrite if necessary, he uh, provided the liquor in the in the building. And it was on a cart when I first got there. Uh, one of the innovations was to put was to keep the liquor in the senior editor's office so that the writers would actually have to walk by the guy uh, to get their booze. And it, it slowed things down a little. It was actually a terrible problem. There were a lot of alcoholics, including me, in uh, in the magazine ranks. And I, I stopped drinking, I think, the year after I got the time and saved my life. Oh, my God. Wait, wait. I didn't know I, I touched a nerve there. You legitimately made you, – you, 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 you as a 30-year-old, one, how much were you making back then as your first job? As oh, a, geez. It, uh, well, it wasn't my first job. I'd been – At timing. At timing. At timing. I think – I think it was uh, eighteen or twenty thousand, something like that. And so that um, was not enough to, you know, uh, get you in the door at studio, much less buy you any product there. Yeah, no. Uh, I, I, in fact, when I took that first job as a temporary secretary, I, uh, I had been out of, you know, basically trying to make it as a freelancer in New York, and uh, I had holes in my shoes. I needed to see a dentist. I was really dead broke, and someone I went to college with was going on vacation, and they, she slipped me in the door, uh, and it, and it, it actually worked to my advantage because this is. Uh, Time in those days was run by men, and the the women were researcher reporters, and the men were writers, and uh, it made some of the editors uncomfortable to have a male secretary. Uh, I was sort of floating from section to section, and so when I put in as a for a job, I saw that this was reporter researcher was a job that I could probably do, uh, and when I put in for that, they they gave it to me pretty quickly. So the social compact there used to be that you come in as a grunt. Uh, a lot of recruiting from the Ivies. Typically, your your you know your senior editors, your Walendas, whoever they were, were Ivy League people, and then their reporter researchers would come in and just get abused. Oftentimes, report and and write the entire story, and might get a tagline at the very end. And and these guys who were taking long lunches would get the premier byline. Um, and, but if you do that long enough, you're bound to get um, an assignment or two, and then you could parlay that into a position or a job offer. So then, how did you work it? Well, I had taken a, a computer class my senior year of high school, uh, and on the strength of that, got a job, summer job as a kind of a kid programmer, and uh, left the whole computer industry. Uh, but when I arrived at Time, uh, it was just when they were starting to get a lot of computer advertising, and they didn't have any edit to go with it. So they needed someone to start writing computer stories to 
so they could sell the ads. Uh, and that's interesting how that that tail worked. used that, that ordered, dog right. used to wag the tail or tail right. used to wag the dog. So, so this position opened up and and I put in for it and the people writer put in for it. Uh, he knew nothing. He knew how to write a time story, but knew nothing about computers. I knew a little bit more about computers than anybody there, but didn't it really had to be taught how to write a, a time story, which is a very formulaic thing. And and I always say a, with the kind of. Uh, training I got where I, everything I wrote got completely redone by senior editors for years and years. It seemed like that a monkey could learn how to write a time story with the with the opportunity I had. I don't think that that they still have that at these magazines because the staffs are so small. What's interesting uh, is as I'm you know I've I just handed in a draft of my book on Miami's cocaine heyday. This is related to what's going on at time. I'll get there. And uh, congratulations. The, thank you, book. thank you, sir. You'll 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 get a, a galley certainly. But what was fascinating to me is this pivotal story, Paradise Lost, this cover story in Time magazine in 1981, written by Jim Kelly on how Florida's, you know, Florida's fall from grace, how cocaine and and uh, murder and narco-terrorism are really bringing down, turning uh, South Florida into a third world country, effectively. And so when I finally bumped into Jim Kelly and met him in New York, I was like, you realize your, your cover story in Miami is legendary. I mean, what was that like? Were you in the trenches? And he just turns to me, this is in New York, he's like, oh, no, I, I never went south of 14th Street for that story. I was like, what? It's like, yeah. yeah, no, I had some really good stringers filing me stuff in Miami, and then we just slapped it together. Yeah, uh, this was... This was the, that was the pattern. It was uh, there's actually a beautiful little book um, called Floater that parodies the system of time. But you would you would query a story. You, you know, in the in the book, it's three quarter length stockings, and you would query Paris, and you'd query L.A., and you'd query New York for files from correspondence about you know what's going on with three quarter length uh, stockings, uh, who's wearing them, what's and by the way. Are they three quarters of the way up or three quarters of the way down? And the joke of the book is the poor floater writes the story and he still doesn't know, you know, where the three quarter length stockings are. So we is would... a floater or a stringer? Is a floater kind of the the the, the guys down there, the foot soldiers that that file the copy and hope to no, get a no, tagline? No, no, a floater is a is a writer who isn't assigned to a particular section, but can write any, you know, can be thrown into any section when when the regular writer is on vacation, uh, and they at Time Inc. had long vacations. I had seven weeks by the end. So you needed a lot of people who could float in and out. And um, there are, you know, this wonderful joke that the that the medicine writer would always, but by the end of the week would come down with the symptoms of whatever disease he was writing about. So you needed someone to be, to pop in at the last minute. Anyway, I, I got the job as uh, to, to write the computer stories. And that's when I met Steve Jobs when he was in town uh, pushing the Lisa, uh, I had the opportunity to write with a uh, work with a, a a very smart Silicon Valley uh, correspondent whose name was Mike Moritz, who at the time was writing a book about Apple. That was 1983, the year we made the computer the machine of the year, and Moritz uh, famously uh, slipped into his story the fact that Steve Jobs was denying paternity of this child uh, and and said something like 97 percent of the men in America could be that child's parent, which is mm. like the most uh, hurtful way to report a, the results of a blood test. That's awful. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so so Moritz lost his uh, access to, to Apple as a result and went on to become uh, one of the most successful venture capitalists in Silicon Valley backing Google and Facebook. And you, first, you first met Steve Jobs in the early 80s then with Lisa? Yeah, yeah. And I... And I 
I, I, I like to say that the first thing he said to me was, was a lie. Uh, I had gotten a, um, a bug in my head about small talk, which is the um, computer language that they developed at uh, Research Park, um, and which was the, you know, the foundation of the point and click and mouse and all that. And I, and I kept trying to get jobs to talk about small talk because uh, he hadn't mentioned it, and he hadn't mentioned Xerox Park at all. It was like uh, the Lisa had come – uh, you know, full born out of his brain. Um, and he finally, uh, you know, I asked him several questions and he finally turned and snapped at me and said, this has nothing to do with small talk. Um, and that was technically true because it uh, was a new language. This is really deep in the weeds, isn't it? But never mind. <laughs> uh, well, I so, do want to, I do want to get though, then to, this was still a very flush period. If I remember, you know, the, the company after all was called Time Warner. Time was the magazine division the old Time Life books, Time Life records, all that jazz. This was a hugely profitable business back in the day, magazines. This was the way to get your news. It wasn't just dentist's office and and um, th there was no other way. You, you, it would be very prestigious to end up in Time magazine. Yeah, and and well, they thought so. It uh, the, the Life magazine is actually the big money maker uh, when it was at its heyday because uh, that was pictures. Uh, and they they would spend more money flying photographers all around the world for life than they would for time, which could mostly be done from New York. Uh, then then life really got threatened by television. And when people started getting their pictures from television, uh, life uh, quickly started. Uh, it went down very quickly and they ended up killing it. I think even before I got the time uh, and then, you know, things would come in and out with while we were there. um uh, we the merger with AOL, uh, where uh, really, it, which remains the most disastrous merger in the history of capitalism. More money was lost on that. Uh, you know, I'm going to challenge you on that. Actually, in terms of deal making, uh, Microsoft's investment in Apple to bail it out in 1997 is the worst deal in history. <laughs> well, okay, but, but uh, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, there's there's no shortage of ink spilled on how catastrophic that year 2000 mega merger was. But even before, I'm just, I'm just talking about dollar value. Sure, they, sure. You know, they put in 300 million dollars into Apple. Uh, billions were lost. Right, uh, right. And that that isn't even counting what. What we lost out of our 401ks, which all suddenly went underwater when that whole deal went south. Well, you know, hold my hand through this because, okay, there you are. So it's the early 80s. It's the late 80s. It's the 90s. Things are thriving. Um, you know, you, you joined those guys in 1979 and you wrote nearly 500 stories for the magazine. You meet all of these people, Elmore Leonard, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. You edit that big, you know, man of the year piece on David Ho, the AIDS researcher, um, you really are in the middle of all this, and you're an indispensable man in that magazine empire. And then things actually, the internet did not immediately disrupt it in the era of Netscape, because I remember 2000, there was such a thud factor with these magazines. I mean, Fortune was printing out double issues. You couldn't get copy quickly enough because there were so many uh, ads coming in from financial and, and, and tech firms that they couldn't staff up quickly enough. You know, that's the way it looked maybe from the outside. From the inside, um, you're just a cog in the machine. Uh, you're fungible. 
Uh, and, you, you know, mostly you're there getting abused and told you have to rewrite that head for the third time. Uh, you, you don't feel like a big shot in the magazine. In fact, you probably know because you worked at, at Business Week for so long. Um, you walk out the building and people treat you with respect. You walk back in the building and you get no respect at all. But in terms of how flush the magazine was, there were... I can't remember what year it started, but there were wave after wave of layoff. I do remember that I nearly got fired the just before the first Gulf War. Um, they were it came down to me and another and a, and a reporter researcher, uh, and and someone came to my defense and said, you know, we really ought to have someone here who knows something about computers. And I, you know, I, I uh, my life was extended a little longer. And I, but I got sort of desperate. And when the Gulf War came along, I started writing about military technology. I knew I had to spread, uh, I had to spread uh, my. Uh, my subject matter a little bit more. I had to find other things to write about than computers mm. and the and the networks. I, see, I was fascinated by the possibility of what would happen when computers were connected, and I wrote several stories about that. Uh, and then when I handed in my third one, they said, "Well, you know, can you write about something else?" Uh, it it just wasn't of in, of interest to the editors until suddenly. Uh, it exploded uh, with Netscape in the early 90s. Yeah, and, and then I wrote a bunch of cover stories about the internet and cyberspace. And although, because uh, Time Inc. at that point was owned by Time Warner, they preferred to call it the Info Highway. And the, and the cover illustration was a bunch of hundreds of televisions zeroing in on your eye. That was their idea of no, what it, the it is. No, it is fascinating. <laughs> Full disclosure, we're talking to Phil Elmer DeWitt, a veteran time and fortune uh, correspondent is now turning into an independent content entrepreneur, hanging up a shingle as as Apple 3.0. And I think it's fascinating to talk about, you know, being in this purportedly from the outside comfortable magazine empire for 36 years and now going out into the great wide open. I do want to uh, get back to the mid-90s. So you survived this layoff in the wake of the first uh, Gulf War. And then suddenly uh, Netscape and Mosaic become a thing. And I remember time, and, and this might go to the original sin 22 years ago, they were very immediate in putting all their properties on the web for free. Right. Um, all this content was just out there under Pathfinder, if I remember. Even before Pathfinder, uh, we cut a deal. They wanted to put the stuff up on CompuServe, and they and they and someone consulted. Oh, it was Walter Isaacson who ended up writing the Steve Jobs book. Mm -hmm. He was a sub-editor then, and he was, but he was interested in this stuff, and they consulted me, and I said, "Oh no, no let's not do CompuServe. Let's do AOL. It's the one that that's more, you know, it's more user friendly. It's got these nice chat rooms. Uh, I think it's going to be a good fit." And what what we did is we put all the content of the magazine, just the type, uh, up on Sunday night before it hit the stands, and opened up these uh, discussion boards and invited the readers to interact Philip, with... how is that not defined as cannibalization? I understand it was an exuberant period, but if you're a, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, if you're, if you're a baker, if you're an artist, you're not going to put a version out there free and kind of front run your your money, you know, your subscribers, your clientele. Like I it was a it was a starry-eyed time, the possibilities were endless. Content uh digital was hot. You know, everybody was getting a 14.4 56k modem, but how do people not look at that that the biz dev people and saying, "Hello, print advertising is our bread and butter." 
Yeah, I don't think they were paying much attention to it. And I was coming from, uh, do you remember the well, the whole Earth Electronic Link? That that was my mo- that was how I used to get on the internet. It was uh, Stuart Brand who did the whole Earth catalog, set it up in in uh, near San Francisco, and it was it was the way I got on the internet, and it was the, an early social network uh, that attracted a lot of journalists and writers and for some reason, deadheads. Right. Uh, and, and that was my, that, that's how I thought things should be. And, and Stuart Brand is the one who's famously said information wants to be free. Right. Uh, and, and I, there I go. Do we you gotta, buy yeah. that? Do you buy that, that information wants to be free? It wants to be free, but it doesn't necessarily get to be free. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it wants to be released. And then the friction is where you make your money. Uh, anyway, the, 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 when we did this thing on AOL, it was a huge success. Uh, I think we had a million people follow, and and CompuServe ended up paying Time Inc. a couple of million dollars to to go away from AOL and and to take it to CompuServe, and for me that was the end of it. We had spent a couple of years building up a relationship with these readers, uh, and and they just sold us out. Uh, I would have nothing to do with the CompuServe thing. Anyway, that was um, after that. Walter went upstairs and launched Pathfinder, uh, and uh, which which I think in retrospect was that was a big mistake. He had the most famous brands in magazines the names time and fortune and people etc and instead instead of using them and, and capitalizing on them he created something no one had ever heard of pathfinder and then made these subfolders within it and the reason he did it uh, actually was cuz uh time inc was like someone once said it was like a medieval uh Duchies, uh, where each each magazine was run by a, run by a prince who hated all the others. So they they needed something general to uh, herd them all in. And Pathfinder, you know, flamed pretty quickly. Walter came down to become the managing editor, and it and that actually helped my career because he he really liked this stuff. And he would he he once ordered up a cover on Cyberpunks, mm. not knowing what that was. He just liked the word, and he wanted to put that word on the cover of the magazine. And I, I did enough reading to know that it was a it was a a specialty within the field of science fiction of a certain kind of writer, but uh, it needed to be bigger than that to be on the cover. So I actually read the old hit cover on, on the hippies that Time had done and and then modeled uh, this cover on the cyberpunks uh, on that and, and tried to make the case that uh, in the future we would all be cyberpunks. Uh, one of my lamer. <laughs> sure. Well, Philip, tell me, tell me before the big AOL disaster, what was the tipping point? I mean, at this point, there's no drink cart. Uh, I even hear that the sodas were phased out, the free sodas that you would get. And are they yeah. still feeding you at magazine clothes? I mean, you're looking around you. Uh, the uh, you know uh, the world is really rapidly changing. Yeah, they were they were still feeding me by the time I left Time in uh, 2007. They kept most of that stuff. They they were bringing in people much, you know, the the entry level position was you know a lower one, uh, and there was less upward mobility. And and generally they thinned out everything about the magazine, including the the paper, so that the we actually lost some luxury advertising because you could it could be seen through the thin paper. Uh, in the old days, you'd query all the bureaus and get all this great reporting, and a researcher would get you a folder of clips and so forth. Instead, they started hiring um, columnists who could write 
a story without the reporting. And at some point, you increasingly saw these these magazines not running a masthead, which kind of showed you how fungible the writers were. You could just bring them in and out. Although the dirty little secret there is that they were they were uh, cutting the masthead just to get an extra page of edit. Uh, you only get as many pages of edit as you sell ads, and that that was getting thinner and thinner. Um, they, I, I, I can't really talk about my career at Time, though, without talking about the thing that ended my career at Time as a, as a tech writer. Please do. Uh, well, it was in 1995. I think I'd done a string of cover stories. I'd, I'd done my Bill Gates cover. Um, and I, uh, I did a cover story about uh, online pornography that blew up in my face. Uh, the the source for it, uh, an undergraduate student at Carnegie Mellon, uh, gave us you know what a news magazine's dream it was an exclusive, full of numbers. He had counted how many pornographic images there were on the on the Usenet at the time, um, and made the case that, which turned out to be wrong, that the internet would make what would bring people to images on the internet was the stuff that they couldn't find on the magazine stand. So he was really big on uh, sex with animals and so forth. Uh, and and my experience, you know, it's we've we've had now thirty years of it, and I think people go to the internet for the same kind of porn they go to the, they used to go to the magazines. They it's pretty pretty much uh, run of the mill sex is what they want. Anyway, the story blew up. Uh, I made enemies of of the civil libertarians who had been my friends for so long, uh, and and for that summer I felt like the most hated man on the internet. I really I really got roasted on the well. Uh, there were magazine articles about uh, what a terrible job Time had done, uh, and uh, there's still for for many years. Uh, I was assigned reading in journalism ethics classes for for what not to do, and it, and actually for the 30th anniversary of that article, which was last uh, July, uh, I went out and tried to find Marty Rim, the guy who was my source. For the 20th did, anniversary of that article, right? No, the 30th, I think. When did the article come out? Uh, was it 85 or 95? It was 95. the 30th. It was the 30th anniversary. No, wow. anyway, whatever. It was an anniversary, big round number, uh, and uh, Fortune wasn't gonna pay for me to hire a detective to find him. So I did a k- Kickstarter program. Uh, uh, I, I launched a Kickstarter, raised the money, hired a, a New York detective, found the guy, and I wrote this up. I ended up finding his house in Westchester and knocking on the door. And and when I realized he was probably on the other side of it. Uh, uh, it made me feel like a stalker, and I had to finally back off. Um, but Philip, I do want to ask you. Well, anyway, um, I became I became the science editor, and I did that for twelve years. And as science editor, I was kind of protected. We were we had lots of uh, of uh, drug company advertising. Um, we could do respectful things. I had a fairly large staff. We did really put a lot of money into graphics. Uh, you know, we did Einstein as the person of the century. We did the Ho cover story. Uh, I was doing three or four, sometimes five cover stories a year and, um, and running a nice little operation within time. Uh, and w- the reason I left in 1979 is Jim Kelly left. They hired a new editor who didn't want to cover science, and they were about to tear the whole thing up. So we all left. We are talking again to Philip Elmer DeWitt, who's about to leave Fortune and the Time, Inc. magazine empire for Apple 3.0, is it called? 
Yeah, the the uh, when I left time, I went to Business 2.0, and uh, the rule, which was run by Josh Quitner, who he used to be a writer at Time, and the rule there was if you worked for Business 2.0, you had to write a blog. Everybody, the secretaries, the art directors, and they were paying us five bucks per thousand page views. I figured if I picked the right topic, I could pay for my flights back and forth to Brooklyn. And uh, I considered writing about sex, but I didn't think my wife would like that. So I decided to write about religion. Uh, and as we know, Apple is a cult. Uh, and the the uh, the blog took off uh, when they killed Business 2.0 and reeled some of us back to New York. They they let me bring the blog, uh, still called Apple 2.0. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't have much fun as an editor at Fortune, and I really had fun writing the blog. So within six or eight months, I cut a deal where I took my retirement money and w just wrote a blog for Fortune. And then I hired a, uh, an agent. We bumped my salary up after three or four contracts. And by the end, was making almost as much money writing about Apple for Fortune as I used to write, make uh, working as a writer at time. So it worked out pretty well. So talk to me about the arrangement that you are leaving right now and what happened to kind of finally convince you to go out uh, on your own. I don't see any evidence out there that anyone is paying directly for journalistic content. There's still hope of a cross-subsidy. I mean, what what Henry Blodgett did at Business Insider, that's, that's a play in kind of selling a company to someone else. Um, what's going on at Vox and these other players, they all have great enterprise values. They're getting VC money. But is anybody actually paying for journalism? I mean, people pay for things on Apple TV. People paid for Louis C.K.'s on-demand concert. I've yet to see anybody actually pay for content, written content, analysis. Oh, no, no. It's a, it's a model that's uh, been proven. Uh, probably the best example, clean, clearest example is Ben Thompson, who writes something called uh, Stratechery. He charges 10 bucks a month, $100 a year. Um, another guy named Neil Seabart, who writes only about Apple, called Above Avalon. He's charging the same amount. Uh, Jason Snell, uh, Six Colors, many, many years at Macworld, charges six bucks a month. I wouldn't even be trying this if I didn't know that other people have made it work. And I can look at how many Twitter followers each of them has, and I sort of know where I fall uh, in terms of uh, my following. Uh, and uh, I've, I talked, I've talked to everybody who's done this that I could reach, and uh, they all told me that it grows slowly, but if you've got a long enough runway, uh, you can make it work. And I, you know, I've still got most of my retirement money left. I can, I can wait this out, I think. We'll see. <laughs> now, the subsidy beforehand is someone like Fortune, right, where Apple is the world's most followed company. It's an amazing comeback story. Everybody is passionate about their iPhones and their phablets and this and that. And and you were writing this column since 2007, so you very much rode um, the, the, the company's kind of golden age, the real iPhone, iPad launch, everything else that's come in that that peak and all the, the coverage that followed um, Steve Jobs' death and now – Oh, the the coattails, you know, is Apple going to go to a trillion dollars? What are they going to do with the FBI? What are they going to do with San Bernardino? What happened that Fortune did not find that indispensable? Again, like there's not – like you talked about being a science correspondent for Time magazine, and that may have been protected for a while because of these fat pharmaceutical ads. What was backing you? You could say, okay, this is my currency. I have a huge Twitter following or I'm a LinkedIn influencer. What happened between you and Fortune over the last year? 
When I started doing the blog for Fortune, there were really only a handful of us that that participated regularly. Most Fortune writers, you know, they feel like they're productive if they do a piece a month. Uh, so it's a it's a very different metabolism. But I came in, and there were a few of others of us, uh, John Ford, who's now at CNBC, and we were we had that blogging mentality. I've i if I felt if I wasn't writing every day, you know, I felt unloved. But but there were just a handful of us. What's happened since the spinoff, and that's really when it changed. When Time Warner when Time Warner spun off Jettison Time, Time Inc. like two years ago, right, and decided they were only going to make movies and film, and they were going to unload the magazine business. Uh, and now there's no time in Time Warner. Uh, I'm surprised they can keep the name. Uh, in any event, uh, the the other thing that was going on because Time. Warner also owned CNN, and and we would write things for Fortune, hoping that they would be picked up by CNN.com, because that was like the fire hose. Uh, I remember one day I wrote, uh, uh, I would get 800,000 page views in a single day. Um, but that the but the the connection between CNN, CNN Money, CNN, and Fortune was going to break. Uh, in June. So they had to figure out a way to make it on their own. And basically what they've done, it's taken them a while, but they've really staffed up. I just looked at the late, at, we use Slack now to communicate uh, within Fortune. And there are 89 people on the Fortune Tech Slack list. Uh, some of them are editors, but you know, it's basically grown tenfold, big staff. And um, they're very much uh, search engine optimization oriented. Uh, they have uh, they have a group of guys. I think it's five people per day, uh, working on something they call the SEO speed wagon, search engine optimization, where they're grabbing they're grabbing headlines, uh, basically in, uh, anything that they think they can get some clicks off of. So they'll be, Mark Gurman will will float a rumor about some Apple product. They can write three paragraphs and get page views on that. Uh, and and because Apple is such a uh, you know, uh, whatever it's called, the, th the things that people click on, uh, they have people now doing lots and lots of Apple stories. Uh, and I'm basically, I was basically competing with five or six guys covering the same beat. So it, it made me do different kinds of stories. It cut in deeply into, you know, probably in half uh, my readership within Fortune. And it made it hard for me to, I had to kind of, thread the needle, try to find something to write about that hadn't already been written about. So uh, I could see from their point of view, why keep me around uh, as, as the guy who finally uh, gave me the ultimatum and said, you know, if you want to keep writing about Apple, you're going to have to do it somewhere else because uh, I can hire three people for the price of you. Um, and I think that's what he's going to do. And, you know, for me, I don't have to hear that twice. That That meant it was time for me to leave. Uh, and to to adopt this business model that I'd seen other people do, uh, and then frankly, I think there's probably a limited number of people who can do this. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to be paying ten bucks a month to a lot of people. Sure. At some point, it gets cheaper to buy the magazine. Of course. Now it's it's interesting that we still get postcard solicitations for ten dollars subscriptions. They're really desperate to keep. I I go back and see old issues of um, Fortune and Money and Time in the nineteen seventies, and you see adjusted for inflation, they've not been able to increase the, the the price. I mean, the advertising gets disrupted in it. People are not paying for the content. There was a wonderful David Carr column. The late David Carr, the New York Times wrote that that 
gosh, uh, what's beautiful about the golden age of content and what's so frustrating is that there's such a glut of content that I have stacks of New Yorker magazines waiting for me. There's a 30,000-word uh, expose on Scientology that I will never get to because I'm still trying to get through the fourth season of The Wire, and everybody's saying I need to try this on Apple TV. Um, when you step back from all this, you are now competing in the broad attention economy. Uh, with various people out there, whether they're bloggers, whether they're people on CNBC, Fox Biz, uh, podcast people that want you listening. We had Arnold Kim of Mac Rumors on a couple of weeks ago. Isn't this so intimidating kind of going out at, at this point in your career and kind of subsisting on your retirement to take this kind of risk? I, you know, it doesn't feel that way to me. I'm optimistic. I think it's going to work. My plan is to do exactly what I was doing for Fortune for this new site. I know how many people would read me every day. Now we're just going to have to find out how many people are willing to pay to read me every day. Have you gotten any open indication on uh, the people out there that are like, I will totally sign up and pay for it? Well, if people have started, I've, you know, I've paid my expenses so far. Uh, I'm hoping to, to eventually make, I'd like to make more money doing this than I used to make working for Fortune. Um, that will take, uh, we'll, we'll see what person, I mean, I have 15,000 plus Twitter followers. Um, I talked to the guy at the New York Times who took uh, the New York Times behind a paywall, and he said the way the math works is the Times has a million readers, but only 10% of them are regular readers, by which they mean read 30 articles a month. Considering how many articles the Times puts out every day, 30 articles is not that much. But if you start, if you ask them to pay, only 10% of those regular readers will pay. So basically they start with a million and they end up with 1% of them. So if it's, if that's what I get, 1%, then you know I'll end up with 150 subscribers. Uh, that's not a lot of money, mm. <laughs> but but it's it's not nothing. And I think I can do better. Um, and we'll we'll um, we'll see. Uh, there are you know you can sell T-shirts, you can start podcasts, you can. Uh, I'd like to. My, my little niche uh, is. Uh, within the hundred people who cover Apple for a living uh, is I'm the guy who's got access to the analysts. Uh, so I do my, every quarter I do my earnings smackdown where I pit the professional analysts against the amateur analyst. And the big joke is the am amateur analysts usually beat the pros. Uh, I do my, today I did my, uh, what the analysts are saying about Monday's Apple event, uh, which you know, now I know what the the analysts are charging three to five hundred dollars for each note that they send out to their subscribers if you buy them a la carte. So I I can uh, grab. You're 15, like a retail tranche of that, right? And for ten bucks, that's cheap. You're getting access to very expensive research for almost nothing. What about to uh, what about to Cupertino itself? This is a notoriously unhelpful company. Um, yeah, well, that makes my job easier because you don't have to call them up every time for a reaction because you know you're not going to get it. And you're not going to, you know, uh, I'll leave it to Mark Gurman to get the leaks from the disloyal Apple engineers who are feeding him the specs of everything before it comes out. I'm not in Cupertino. I don't have, I'm not, that's, he can do that. I like Mark. I'm, I'm glad he does it. It's, I'm not sure I'm glad he does it, but it's, that's not something I want to do. And I, what I certainly don't want to do is be one of the 25 people who picks up what he, the news he just broke and, and, and tries to make a living reprinting that. 
Uh, did you ever look at tech meme? Uh, occasionally. Know? Yeah. Well, you know how when there's a big story, uh, there will be one person will have reported it, and there'll be 150 people who've echoed it. You know, that's a really bad place to be. Uh, someone once advised me, you don't want to be in the news business because the news news loses its value, you know, the minute after it comes out. You got to be somehow in the analysis of the news business, or you got to be breaking your own news. Um, the main way I do that is to, I don't know, you know I don't want to give away secrets, but the one thing I can do is work those analysts. Mm. Uh, and if I do a podcast, it will probably be interviews with analysts. Um, which, you know, is a pretty rarefied. So who cares about that? Well, people who have invested in Apple care about that. And that's uh, a And these are people of, with purse strings to pull. Well, maybe. They, you know, I've met, I've met a lot of Apple millionaires uh, who they had fairly modest incomes, but they threw it all into Apple a long time ago. And now they're multimillionaires and they're watching that fever chart really closely. And the stuff I give them is really useful to them. Because uh, many of them have now now buy and sell options, and you know, God bless them. That's a scary business. Now I know you're a, you're a civil and and really respectful person, and you look back largely fondly at your your three and a half decades at timing. But then what happens to this hulking legacy print, decidedly print operation that's out there, with a big debt load, with largely magazine presences? Um, what do they do now? Like you hear rumors that they might get acquired by Yahoo or the stub Yahoo if Melissa Mayer sticks around there? How do you innovate? I see that their CEO um, keeps pushing, you know, we're a content company. We'll push video. We'll do sponsored content. We'll do, um, you know, whatever it is that, that BuzzFeeds and the, the big kids on the block are doing. How does a, a timing kind of stay relevant in this environment? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. And I think if they knew they would do it, I, I think they're going in the wrong direction. Frankly, I don't think uh, SEO Speedwagon is going to pay the bills. SEO being search engine optimization. Optimization, yeah. You know, just uh, running, it's kind of the Huffington Post model. In fact, some of the people at, at running time now are Huffington Post um, graduates. Uh, and I saw a whiteboard once that had uh, something like 25 model headlines. Th these are the headline formulas that work on the internet. Uh, and you know them, right? You know, 10 ways to do this and that. Uh, uh, the, the surprising so-and-so who did this. Uh, things that give you just enough information to get your interest but don't tell you enough that, so you have to click on it. Uh, and that's a, that's a science. Uh, it's a useful thing. It's not what I want to do. And I don't think it's where Fortune wants to be where, you know, their, their main claim to fame was access to CEOs so that they could do the definitive inside story about Intel, say. Mm. God bless Andy Grove's soul. Mm, that's right. He just passed away. Well, the stock, Time Inc., has is, is, uh, gotten cut in half from its 52-week high. It's actually uh, – it went from $24. It's now closer to $16. And it's a struggle because you're not just competing against you know, what's left in the pure play print uh, players of the world, the New York Times, right? The New York Times is pushing its ad studio now. There, there are various ways that you want to project as a public company. Uh, in a perfect world, you would not be a public company, and you can do these things behind, uh, you know, the, the prying eyes of of shareholders and activists. Um, what do you think happens to them strategically on a broader level? They're enormous legacy costs. Again, they moved away from Rockefeller Center, and they're now in a more of a 
bullpen environment uh, near the World Trade Center. My magazine, Business Week, was unceremoniously sold off. You have Bloomberg subsidizing the losses. What do you see happening? Well, I think the question is who who pays for the reporting? Who that's, pays? Yeah, for, that's what I want to get at. Ultimately, for the that is that is yeah. the that is the question du jour for Mr. Philip Elmer Dewitt, our guest. Well, and, I, and I keep remembering what happened with. Um, there, the two great New York newspapers were the New York Times and the Herald Tribune. And the New York Times was owned by a family that whenever they had money, they put it into new bureaus. And the the Tribune was owned by a family that just wanted to get money out of the business. So when there was any extra money, the Tribune would, would pocket it. The family that owned the company would pocket it, whereas the New York Times was opening bureaus in Berlin and and Istanbul. And when World War II broke, uh, there was the New York Times with people in place right where the action was, and the, the Herald Tribune had nothing. And some people think, I, there's a whole book about it, and they think that's what killed it. So um, I was at time watching what Time Inc. was doing when the money got tight, and what they were doing was closing bureaus and hiring columnists. Um, because you were not getting a return on investment. If you, as as the the top Walendas at the Time Inc. magazine empire, came together and said, here's a, here's a wish list we have of the 10 people we most want, it's not going to move the needle. You're not going to get inundated with advertising. I mean, when Bartlett and Steele were let go, these, these uh, storied investigative people that could not be afforded by Time magazine, you knew that kind of the end was near. Yeah, they, to, you know, they would go up and down. Walter Isaacson, when he came in, made the case that he could grow the readership by spending money on the journalism, and they let him try it, and it actually worked. Uh, but you know, then, then you know, in, unless you have someone who can really make the case and has great news sense and all the stuff that the package that Walter was, um, that's a tough sell. And and now, you know, at, at Time Inc. Uh, you knew the handwriting was on the wall when, you know, there used to be this this uh, division between church and state where the the church is the journalism and state is the guys who sell the ads. And there were rules about how uh, the the advertiser could have, you know, have no influence on what the content of the magazine was. And uh, if there was a conflict, the journalism won. Well, um, they, after the merger, uh, they got rid of the church and state division. And now... Time Inc. has no editor-in-chief. Uh, Norm has some other title, uh, Norm Perlstein. Norman some, Perlstein, uh, right? Yeah, uh, who used to be your boss, right? Um, he's got some. He's got a nice office and some title, but it's not editor-in-chief. And now the magazine is actually run by Joe Rip, who's a who made his way up th- through the ad sales business. So in the five or six minutes that we have left, um, I want to get actually, if you can reach out there and channel your 1979 self, what is your advice to young people out there? You and I certainly get emailed by them left and right on, I want to get into journalism. I want to get into something. There, there seems to be no social compact anymore where you can come in as a researcher, fact checker who pours coffee and expect to have um, – a decent salary to live on in five or six years. There's there's no certainty about that anymore, but how would you advise the cub reporter out there or the college newspaper writer or blogger who wants to to pursue this kind of career? I I happen to think uh that it's the that we may be entering the, the golden age of journalism because now anybody, you know, famously anybody with it used to be that that uh 
freedom of the press was owned by those who owned the printing press. Now anybody can do it. Uh, and you But know, can you anyone get, make money on it? Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, that's where we have these experiments. My advice is uh, to the to people getting into it is uh, don't go to print unless you know there's probably that's not where you want to go. Go online because that's where the action is, uh, and find a niche uh, and become the world's if you can the world's best at that particular niche, and then be prepared to get a new one in five years. Say that again. Be prepared to get a new one because this is this is nothing is stabilizing, right? If this began uh, with the explosion and the AOL Time Warner uh, promise and the disaster and the period following that and the dot com crash, you know we are a good seventeen years into this continued decline, which is both secular and cyclical. Right, and that's the big picture about the industry. Uh, in in the small picture of what this college graduate's going to do, um, you've got to, uh, like I say, f focus on something that you can, where you can deliver real value. Uh, and then because the world changes, be prepared to find something else when that no longer has value. Um, how actually we all get paid for it, um, uh, I think you should watch my experiment closely because I think I think this is a model that can work. Uh, if you've got the you know, a, the Apple is special in that um, a it's the beat that never stops giving, uh, but and b there are people actually can make money if you've got good information uh, because they trade on it. Uh, but there it's not the only way to do it. And finally, when when should you have left? Like if you could go back and talk to an earlier iteration of yourself when would have been an ideal point for you to go back and and try striking out on your own i had a good run at timing and i have no complaints i think uh i should have seen the handwriting on the wall with the the uh merger um i actually wrote a piece uh you know to my readers whatever happened to apple 2.0 because because the day they they pulled the switch on cnn money and went to a new design uh, the day that the biggest issue of the year, the Fortune 500 came out, and the day that Apple was having a big uh, event in uh, in uh, San Francisco, and uh, oh, it was uh, WWDC, and both those stories got totally lost because the you know the thing melted down. Of course, the first day you put a a new website up, it melts down, um, and it was just it, and they. You know, there's that article, I, it's painful to go back and read it, all the things that broke at once. And my readership fell by 80% in one day. And I've been, you know, trying to build it back up ever since. And I did get it basically back up. And then and then along comes, uh, you know, this uh, 89 people covering the same beat. And I, uh, I, I should have gotten out before then. But in your approximate 37 years in magazine journalism, never once did you have to succumb to the siren call of, of leaving for a public relations job. Am I right? Yeah, thank God. Yeah. So run that victory lap, sir. That is <laughs> <laughs> Philip Elmer DeWitt, after working for Time, Inc., Time Magazine, Fortune, Business 2.0 for 36 years, he's now going independent at PED30.com. It's the Apple 3.0 blog. Uh, but you're going to have to pay to get in, sir. Don't do it for the exposure, man. This man needs to, to pay his bills. I have to add that there's a little twist on that $10 per month 
because it, when you're behind the paywall, you disappear from Google and everything else. So my paywall lifts after three days. If you if you don't want to pay, wait three days and you can read the content for free. But then you'd have to be eating ramen noodles. So we, we certainly don't want you doing that, good sir. Thank you so much for joining us, Philip. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Good luck with uh, NPR One. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us on NPR One, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Acast, and WRIR. And feel free to send me $10 a month for my podcast or $100 a year. I'll even take a five-star rating on iTunes or NPR One. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. Thanks.